Hopefully that sound means you know where you're at and uh, you're happy to be back. This is Guardians of the Future. I'm just a lad. I know it's been a while, but uh, hey, as I say all the time, recording two podcasts is a lot of work, especially when it's not your full-time job. And uh, yeah, we'll do the, obviously we'll do this as, as time allows. And obviously we have, we have big news to talk about. If you have been living under a rock, the Guardians won the lottery. They won the draft lottery. I wish they would have won the lottery in other ways, I suppose, but uh You'll take what you can get. The Guardians own the number one pick in the 2024 draft. And here to talk about it with me today is Joe Werner, a self-published author, author, author of the, uh, the Prospect Digest. You can also have seen him in the past at The Athletic, ESPN, Baseball Research Journal, The Bill James Handbook, Cleveland native, and a uh, great writer. And I always enjoy his thoughts on the draft in the minor leagues. So, Joe, thanks for uh, joining in today. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. So uh, you want to give people a little, anybody who may not know you or uh, are familiar with your work, you want to give them a, bit, a little bit of background? I mean, if you're watching on YouTube, I do have Joe's nice book up here, the 2023 Prospect Digest. You can find that on Amazon along with past copies that go back. I'm not sure how many years it goes back, Joe, but I have I have at least two other books in my bookshelf from you back there. I think that is actually book number nine. And wow. uh, as you and I were talking, I think this year, this may be the last one. So this is book number 10. I figured that was a nice round number uh, to kind of uh, end on. But yeah, so as you kind of mentioned, I've been fortunate enough. I kind of stumbled into uh, some pretty uh, notable notable publications, both co-authoring and authoring. And, and uh, over the past decade or so, I really kind of focused in on, on minor league baseball and, and prospect analysis. Yeah, no one, no one does it better than Joe because, he, like I said, he's a self-published author, and it's a lot of work to put in 20 prospects for uh, 30 teams year in and year out, and not to mention doing all the draft stuff too, which is a lot of fun. And and this is why we're going to talk drafts today because, obviously, Cleveland's picking number one overall. They had 2.7% chance to win the number one pick in, in the lottery, and lo and behold, they came up and they got it. The, the Washington Nationals were supposed to pick first, that's how the lottery balls fell, but uh, because they were not allowed to pick first because uh, what their revenue pay in, paying team, so they pay into the revenue sharing program for baseball, and those teams do not qualify to pick in the lottery back-to-back years, so they couldn't pick any earlier than 10th. Oddly enough, they were selected first, but they had to do a second draw and came up Cleveland, and the Reds, the Reds are picking second, and they had like an even lesser chance to pick second because they actually finished the season with the winning record. They went 82 and 80 and they're picking second. So I'm going to say this is the lottery working Oakland athletics and and not, not to disparage Oakland athletic fans here because I I do feel for them with the situation going on. I think it's awful, but that franchise, the way they're operating and the, what's happening, I I can't say they deserve anything good to happen to them. So they're not going to pick first, even though they were one of the worst teams in baseball last year. I know the White Sox fans are probably mad. There's a bunch of teams that are that are mad that it worked out this way. But you know what? I'm going to say that this is the lottery working because uh, it's supposed to disincentivize tanking. And Cleveland wasn't tanking last year, even though they didn't play the way they everybody wanted to or they thought they were going to. And the Reds were almost a playoff team, and they're picking second. So I don't know. Am, am I biased for saying because we live in Cleveland that this is the lottery working, or is this actually working? No, this is the lottery working, and I. <laughs> I think there's usually, I know for the NBA with the, the lottery and everything, there's always the conspiracy conspiracy theorists that say that it's rigged and everything like that. And, uh, you know, I don't think that there's any way. I mean, like you kind of mentioned, 
the ideal team basically would have been Oakland. They were terrible. And, uh, you know, and in Cleveland, Cincinnati, both were kind of in it, you know, Cleveland kind of faded down the stretch and whatnot, but at points they looked like they might, uh, might do something. And then they just kind of fell back. So I think if you, if you live in Ohio, it's a, it's a good day. Uh, when both teams finished one and two in the lottery. And I was excited. We were live streaming over at Lockdown Guardians. If you're here listening to this, I assume you listen to Lockdown Guardians. We were streaming during the whole thing going on. We were counting down the picks, and it was just like, okay, they're, they were projected to pick eighth, and then the Mets didn't finish there, so they had, they got bounced ten picks um, because they were in the luxury tax. And then they didn't pick seventh. They didn't pick sixth. And I'm like, what is happening? Like, they're, they're jumping up two spots, and they went to commercial, and then they're jumping up five, and – just as it kept going on that they weren't getting announced. I'm like, Oh my God, are they going to pick number one overall? And and they did. And the stories that came out on baseball America and the athletic from, from Zach Meisel, about how this all, this all happened was just absolutely incredible. So yeah, great day. I mean, I, all things considered, I think the 2023 draft was probably the year you wanted to pick number one overall because there were, I don't know, three to five guys. I think uh, depending on how you feel about the high school kids from that draft, that would have been, you know, one, one overall picks most years. Uh, this draft doesn't seem like it's going to be like 2023, but I feel like it's still a pretty good draft. I guess it just depends on, you know, how you want to spend the money. And I'll talk about a little about that too. And, and how you want to plan your draft and what you're good at developing. But Cleveland's got a chance at a very good player here. Even if this is not the 2023 draft, there are a lot of players uh, that, you know, I think are, worthy of being number one overall picks in, in many years, maybe not last year. It's like, you know, I want to talk about Nick Kurtz and Travis Bazana and we can talk about JJ Weatherholt and some other guys. I don't know if, I don't know if, if those three would be number one overall picks in the 2023 draft, if you placed them there, but I feel like 2023 is kind of an outlier. And these, these guys are still, I think very worthy number one picks possibly. Yeah. And I think, you know, not to kind of take a step back, but I think, you know, during the, the summer, I took a, a pretty much a deep dive uh, because I'm always fascinated on what kind of leads certain organizations into a specific way when it comes to drafting. And it always seemed like under Michael Elias in Baltimore and then when it was David Stearns in Milwaukee, they always focused in on college bats and they went college bats first round, second round. And it was the overwhelming majority of the time. And these are two farm systems, especially Baltimore, where, you know, both teams really tend to hit on their picks early in the draft, especially taking college bats. So um, I took a kind of a similar deep dive for, for Cleveland and specifically how things looked under Mike Chernoff. You know, I think he was hired on at the end of 2015. So 2016 would have been his first, when I say hired on, I mean promoted to GM. Um, 2016 would have been his first draft at that position. And there are a lot of, a lot of interesting things that I came up with um, because I think it does kind of help paint a picture on maybe who they're targeting or what they're targeting, right? Um, so... Since 2016, the Guardians have had 11 first-round picks, all right? They have gone under under the recommended slot bonus nine times on those picks. Bonus trivia question for you, Justin. 
can you name the two guys they went over slot on? And I'll give you a hint. It was in the same draft. It was in the same first round. Uh, let's see. For, since 2016. Yep. Wow. That's going to be tough. Um, I wouldn't have been able to it, get this. Was it Daniel Espino? Was he one of them? Nope. Wow. Um, I would have figured a prep kid would have, would have been a prep kid. Bo Naylor? Bo Naylor. Bo Naylor and Ethan Hankins. Oh, because they had the comp. Yeah, that, that was the Hankins was the comp pick that year. So they actually did go over. The, okay. I didn't realize that. I, I feel like they've never gone full slot in the first round. So they went over slot in both those years. Yep. Or that, that, both those picks. That was 2018. And then they went way under slot with Lenny Torres, who was, uh, I think he was like a 35th overall pick or something like that. He was way at the back end of the first round. Yeah, because they would have had a pick that year from uh, the Carlos Santana signing, I think. Yep. So, number one, chances are they're going to go under slot again. And that's mm-hmm. what most teams do anyways at the top of the draft. I also went back and took a look. Uh, the There are several teams basically in a row that have gone under slot. And I think you and I, was as you were kind of setting this up, Spencer Torkelson is the last – one one that went at the recommended or slightly above the recommended slot bonus for the number one overall pick. And he just won a hundred grand over the, the recommended slot. So again, I'm guessing like you kind of said, it's not a real clear cut number one player at this point. Um, they're probably going to go under slot on, at this one, I would guess. Yeah. I, I'd almost be sure of it. I mean, even, the Orioles picked 1-1 in 2022. They went under slot. The Pirates have had number one pick overall two of the last three years. They've gone under slot. Although, I don't know how under slot they went on Paul Skeens. Paul Skeens last year has the highest first-round bonus of any player ever at $9.2 million. I don't think Cleveland's approaching that, $9.2 million. And I know some people will jump and say that's a bad thing or it's the organization being cheap. And I'm, I'm not going to discourage anyone and say, like, you know, there's reasons to be frustrate with how this franchise spends money or whatever they do. Like, that's fine. You want to be mad at that and um, have reasons to gripe. I think there are reasons and I, that's fine. I'm not going to tell anybody how to feel, but as I've been saying other places that it's still okay to be invested and get excited about this number one overall pick and feel like it's going to be an impactful thing for them. Because like you said, most teams do go under slot in the first round and uh, especially one one overall because you've got a large bonus pool available to you so i saw i think carlos calaza from baseball america say that the team that was supposed to pick not would have picked ninth last year which is where cleveland was projected to pick initially in this draft if they would have picked number one last year they would have added like nine or ten million to their bonus pool um or maybe it was four but i can't remember anyway they would have they would have you know added a huge amount to their bonus pool had they jumped to the number one pick and that's what Cleveland did. So Cleveland's going to have a lot of money to play with in their bonus pool this year, probably over, I don't know. I'm not really sure what the, the totals are. They don't have them out yet, but they spent 10 million last year total. Um, when you count the overages from rounds 11 on, because uh, 11 through 20, you can only pay guys 150,000. And if you go over that, you are, are a percentage of that goes to against your, your overall uh, bonus pool. And Cleveland did that a couple times and they even gave Alex Moody, I think a million dollars in the 10th round, ninth round, 
which you know caused them to miss out on two other picks in the draft. Um, but this is a team that that spends the entire amount of their bonus pool allotted to them every year in the draft. This is where they spend money and um, they better because this is where they have to get things right. And it's imperative they get this right. Look, they're going to pick number one overall. They're going to pick 36 in the comp A round. They're going to pick 48 in the second round. And then um, after that, they're three through 10. They'll pick 10th overall based on record. It goes after that. Uh, but they've got a chance to get some really good players. And if you haven't listened elsewhere, as I've explained it, and Joe, maybe you have a little more insight into this, or you can correct me if I have something wrong here. But essentially, I go back to the Cam Collier thing from from was Cam Collier 2022? Is that the right class? Yeah, he was 2022. So everybody kind of had Cam Collier like as a as a top 10 pick or top 15 pick, whatever. And he gets all the way down to where the Reds are. And I can't remember where he actually went, but it was kind of surprising maybe to some people that he fell where he did. And it felt like essentially what the Reds did was offered him a great bonus and his advisor, because he was going into a junior college, he declared early or he graduated high school early and he could have shopped that bonus offer from the Reds around and say, Hey, the Reds are offering whatever he ended up getting. Are you going to match that? Cause if not, my client's not signing and he fell and he fell and he fell and he got to the Reds. The Reds gave him that bonus. So you can think of it as a way to trade down without trading picks because you can't trade picks except for the comp round picks. Um, so you can't, Cleveland can't trade the first overall pick. If people think that, I know there's a lot of opinions out there. People think they can, they can't. Um, but essentially you can, you can create a bonus demand for guys. You can say, we'll offer this player X amount of dollars. And if that, if that player's advisor or agent calls their teams and says, Hey, Cleveland's offering this, are you going to match it? Cause if not, my client's not signing and their teams say, well, we're not matching that. So they go to the next guy on their board and that guy gets essentially quote unquote, I would say bought down to that pick. And I think that's what Cleveland has a chance to do here. Not just picking a really good player one overall, but 36, 48, wherever they, you know, picking 10th in the third round. You can, yeah. You could potentially buy a player down the board. Does that sound roughly about the, the strategy here? Yeah. I mean, Cincinnati gave, Collier $5 million as you know, and the 18, I think it was the 17th or 18th overall pick. And that's basically money that was like uh, somewhere around like, I think number nine or so that value for that year. So uh, there's definitely, I mean, we've seen teams go under slot and then just get very creative. You know, the Astros made a living under Jeff Leneau doing that. And they were, I don't know if they probably weren't the first, but they definitely popularized it and uh you know i think the the guardians really have a chance to you know they got four like you said four of the top 86 picks and they got a ton of money and uh uh so it'd be really interesting to see uh their approach yeah i i I mean like you said they're definitely not going to go full slot number one overall that's it's very unlikely they're going to do that and I think the K the long way of saying it is, is what I just said is they're going to try to spread the money around and they always tend to spend to spread the money around, you know, outside of 2018. Like you said, they, they went over on Bo Naylor and, and uh, Ethan Hankins, which, you know, one of those picks is working out. One is not really working out, but that's the, you know, if you have a 50% hit rate in the draft, you're doing pretty good, even if that's a lot of money spent. Um, so we'll see what their strategy is. I, I think that's what it'll be is they'll have a lot of money to compete for a lot of picks. And you mostly see that in, high school kids like Cam Collier, you see 
buying kids out of commitments lower in the draft. I don't, I don't think they're going to go prep number one overall at this point. Like, I, I don't know as much about the draft as you do, Joe, or as Willie Hood, who's usually on their side, or, or Jeff Ellis, who's my Lockdown Guardians partner. I don't know that much about the draft. I know a little bit, enough to be dangerous, as I say, but um, it doesn't seem as of now. And, and high school always changes. Like, there's seven months between now and the draft, and a lot of things could change. Um, so a high school kid could always pop up late in the cycle. But I would say as of now, I don't see a, a high school kid as being the pick for Cleveland at, at 1-1, which is rare because I was doing some digging myself, and I was looking, okay, when's the last time a high school outfielder or a college outfielder was one overall, which was the last time a college first baseman was one overall. And I don't think a college first baseman's ever taken number one overall because uh, Spencer Torkelson was announced as a third baseman. And then I was looking at, at second baseman because Travis Bazana, who's in conversation at 1-1 as a second baseman, or J.J. Weatherholt, those guys, not a lot of second basemen taking number one overall uh, either. So this presents a very unique situation for Cleveland. I'm personally, the, and this is why I have it, if you're watching on YouTube, we have it, Nick Kurtz versus Travis Bazana. To me right now, it's those two guys. Maybe you have a, a different opinion, Joe, but for me, I feel like as of now, as of December 12th, um, it's those two guys. So I think you can make the argument for either one of them at this point. I think my, uh, I'm probably going out on a limb and I tend to do that. Uh, I get accused of doing that just to be an outlier. And that's certainly not the case, but, uh, I like, um, Connor Griffin. I like the, the prep outfielder. I mean, I watched some BP and, and some game tape of him, and the ball just explodes off his bat. Like, it is it is an audible explosion. And, uh, you know, he's got a cannon for an arm. His swing is about as short and quick as you'd ever expect out of a, a teenager. And, you know, I think the Indians – or the Guardians, I'm sorry, I'm still calling <laughs> it years later – but the guardians they tend to rely on on their models quite a bit or at least that's how it seems especially when when it comes to pitching and griffin reclassified he was the top player for 2025 and he reclassified for 2024 which means he's only going to be i i didn't look at his birthday but i'm assuming he's only going to be 17 at that time and i remember i don't know if you remember when when kansas city selected bobby witt jr and there was such a big discussion because he was 19 instead of 18 at the time of the draft. And, and a lot of people were poo-pooing that. And, uh, you know, so it kind of plays both ways. But, you know, it's the same thing with Cam Collier. Cam went to uh, reclassified, basically, or graduated early, went to a JUCO. And he kind of manhandled the JUCO competition. And obviously you know, 17 year old who's already considered, you know, a top 10 pick right now. Um, you know, I just, I don't know. That's kind of my, my sleeper pick, so to speak. So if there is, if there is a high school kid in play, you think it's, it's Griffin and he, I'm looking at his perfect game profile right now and he's listed six, four, two, ten, and he will be 17 years and 17 months at the time of the draft. When it comes around in July, he's an LSU commit. So, it's going to take some money. My that my only my only argument against this is, I mean, high school player, you're right. They do rely on their models. He's going to be young for the class because he reclassified and 
this is a kid who looks like he's got a lot of tools and it's a nice size for an outfielder. And, you know, the, the history of college picks one, one, especially bats um, is a little bit different. I mean, unless you've got like a Chris Bryant and it's not even, it's just one, one overall, like number one, overall picks, it tends to be guys that are either high school pitch. It's either college pitching or it's a high school talent on the position player side. Historically, that's just the numbers bear that out. So it's, it's a strange year. It could be a strange year, but, um, you might have a point here. And, and I, I think you're right. Griffin makes a lot of sense, but my only thing is if he's committed to LSU and he's young for the class and, uh, has a chance to be a really good player going to a very good program that just produced, you know, one of the top picks in this past draft and they're getting every player transferring to them besides, you know, the guys that are going to Wake Forest. Um, it's going to take a lot of money and that could take away from their approach. Maybe, although, Although the Orioles did go number did go Jackson Holiday over Drew Jones in 2022, and they I think they went under slot with that pick by about 200 grand, I think, on that one. Okay, so that's I mean that's that's not insignificant, but it's also not like massive savings. I am curious to see, like you said, Cleveland will probably go under slot one one. I'm curious to see how far under slot it, it goes at that point. So I think it definitely under turn off the Guardians are they're kind of a wild card because they tend to be this conservative organization, right? They, they're very risk adverse, or at least that's kind of what it seems uh, based on some of the moves and everything. But if you look at the first round on their turn off, that's really not the case, right? Uh, again, of his 11 picks, right? He takes two high school catchers. That is, you know, outside of young arms, that is the most, that is the riskiest position that you're going to be taking in the opening round of the draft. Uh, it was Bo Naylor. And then I guess, you know, we'll see if Rafi Velasquez actually stays behind the plate or not, but they did call him out as a catcher last year. And then they also grabbed three high school arms. So of, of the 11 picks under turnoff, you know, you have literally almost 50% of those have been the risky, the two riskiest groups, you know, to draft and develop just because of the attrition rate and health and everything like that. So uh, they're kind of difficult to pin down, you know, just because uh, as risk adverse as they seem to be, you know, at least in the draft, they kind of push all their chips, their collective chips to the center of the table and, and kind of go all in on, on some riskier uh, choices. Yeah, you're definitely right. I mean, I feel like they, they, my, my, uh, other co-host Jeff usually points this out. They do tend to like what you would call unicorn type players, guys that, you know, are hard to develop or if they, if they are developed properly can become superstars and, you know, Cleveland has to find these players to the draft, like Daniel Spino unicorn. It's a high school arm, special talent, but you know, very unusual profile considering his size and, delivery and obviously he's already underwent surgery you can throw hankins and will benson in that in that bucket you can even throw tristan mckenzie in that bucket being a high school arm um i'm gonna i'm gonna throw everything out from 2020 i'm just i know i know they picked tucker and burns and you know the logan allen things working out we'll see what happens with pd but i'm throwing everything from 2020 out the window because it was a weird year i think it's going to be one of those things that you probably can't start writing about it or looking into it now 
but as I'm working through all the books and the book and I've done in the past too, you come across 2020 players all the time. And it, like you said, because COVID basically wrecked all of the high school season and limited college to what, you know, two weeks worth of games or two and a half right. weeks worth of games. Uh, the results are just, you either hit big or you, everybody just missed. And there's, there's literally nothing in between there's, you know, and uh, it is just one of those weird years. Yeah, I'm throwing everything out from those years. I'm not going to hold that against anybody. And I'm not going to hold it against the players. It's not their fault either that that happened. And I'm not going to hold it against the teams either. I, I mean, I would even say, if you look at the other first-round picks, like Gavin Williams, there were there were red flags there. Like, there were teams that didn't even have on their board in the first round because he had health concerns in college. And he didn't really have a long track record, which usually Cleveland doesn't go for either. And then you look at Chase DeLauder. Another guy who comes from a small school, obviously had the Cape Cape Cod League success, which is a huge part of their model, and he's young for the class, but a guy who didn't play a lot in college because he was hurt and comes from a small school. That's a very risky profile, and like you said, Ralphie Velasquez, also a very risky profile. I will say the difference with Bo Naylor, I feel like, is that, they, like you said, they announced him as a catcher, but he really wasn't a catcher on the amateur circuit. Like He played a lot of infield, and they – there was talk before the draft. I remember that he would move to catcher and maybe a lot of people who, I mean, you probably know more than I do about this, that he was going to be a catcher in the pros or they were going to try that. But I remember reading a lot about him playing third base and other positions as an amateur up in Canada. Whereas Velasquez, I think has just been a catcher straight through his entire college or entire high school career. And um, you know, he, the hope with Velasquez, I think even if he doesn't stick a catcher, I think the hope is he hits too much to worry about keeping a catcher because you want to move the bat faster than the glove so maybe that's the thing there but i seem to remember naylor maybe being moved to catcher versus you know i know they announced him as a catcher but he necessarily not maybe not all teams would have announced him that way yeah he i mean i think that even makes it more impressive of what he's done you know what was it two years ago when he hit i think it was double a the first time he barely oh, yeah. hit his weight and you know that tends to be the the i always call it the the true test, because that's usually, in my opinion, the most difficult level for a player to to pass. And if they have some type of success there, you know, they're, the odds of them at least making the big leagues, depending on their age and performing, is usually pretty pretty good. And he looked atrocious. And you know, it's there's a reason why you know catching is so difficult, and even you know the bar at the big leagues is so low to be a starting catcher is because it's a grind and there's a lot to do. And, you know, he was learning on the fly a lot and, and uh, yeah, it's just been fun to watch. Yeah. And he was coming off that COVID year too. 2021 came right off the heels of the COVID year. So yeah. that was a uh, huge, a lot of people dropped him in the rankings that year. I'll go back to that and I'll say, I, I was willing to at least give him a mulligan on that. And I'm glad I did. Cause it made me look smarter than I actually am that he ended up panning. I did not drop, drop him that far. So, you're right. They they do tend to surprise, and a college hitter at one one. I don't want to say it'd be safe because, you know, if there are risks involved. I mean, if you go back, I'm sure because you were doing dives on history. I'm sure, like you look at the history of number one overall picks being the history of first round picks as a first baseman in general are just very low. Like, it's not good. Like, uh, I think the best first baseman ever taken in the first round in the draft was like Frank Thomas. And that was, you know, obviously many moons ago at this point. Then you've got, you know, your Mark McGuire's and Todd Helton and there's Will Clark. 
those guys are all good, but none of them went one, one overall. Like, um, Adrian Gonzalez went first overall in 2000, but he was a high school pick. You don't see a lot of college first baseman taking, taking that high in the draft. I mean, yeah, Will Clark was taking number two overall in 85, but college baseball and baseball in general is very different now than it was in, in 1985. So hard to, hard to compare to that. And I don't know if, if you think Nick Kurtz can play some outfield or not. And then I'd have to go back. I mean, high, high school outfield, you're talking about Connor Griffin. I feel like, High school outfield's probably a little bit more common. And then you have to draft to what what the strength of the draft is, right? You can't just uh go back and look at history. You do have to you have to go and look at the history of the draft or look at who's in the draft and decide who to take. But yeah, high school outfielders. I mean, you got Ken Griffey who went in 87, a year that Cleveland could have picked number one overall because they had a horrible 86, but because they used to alternate between AL and NL picking number one, Cleveland uh, missed out on, on Ken Griffey that year. And then there's Bryce Harper in 2010, uh, although he went to a JUCO and he was young, so there was that. But uh, go back to 1980, Daryl Strawberry. So there's there's more examples of high school outfielders going number one overall. So your point about Connor Griffin, I think, definitely stands. I just wonder how much, I don't know, do you think that Kurtz or Bazana is a little bit safer and – uh, how, do, how do you feel about those two players? And how do you feel about J.J. Weatherholt? And how do you feel about them versus the guy you think is right now uh, a sleeper on the board in Connor Griffin? So Weatherholt first, because he seems to be a popular a popular mm-hmm. name uh, because he's a middle infielder, as is Bazana. But I think we all know how Cleveland tends to collect middle infielders like, like nobody's business. Uh you know, I, I'm a big proponent, and this is probably not going to come across the way I want it to, but I'm a big proponent of, of checking out the level of competition. And I know that Weatherholt hit like 450 or something in, in last year, but he's playing in the Big 12, you know, and there's just, I don't know, he hit pretty well. He, I think he hit really well for Team USA the year before, but I watched the swing and I just... I don't know. I I don't know. I don't think he's going to be an impact bat. I think he's going to be a, a high floor, low ceiling type of guy that's probably going to move quickly. Um, you know, I think he had 16 home runs last year, but I think everybody was everybody and their mother. It seemed like he had a dozen or so home runs in college baseball last year. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure I believe fully in the power, and I think he's supposed to play shortstop this year. We'll see mm-hmm. how that happens and if he can stick at shortstop. But, you know, it, the question is that always comes down to, right, why you never pick a high school second baseman is because they're supposed to be the premium player on their team. The shortstop supposed to be the premium player. So if they're second base, who is beating them out for shortstop? And I'm, and I think that's an important question to ask for Weatherholt too. And, and uh you know, I don't think he's as toolsy as I know he ran quite a bit last year, still 16 bases, I think, or something like that. Um, but you watch him run. I don't think he's a plus runner, so he's probably stuck, you know, on the infield dirt. So, um, you know, I think he's a safe pick, but I, he wouldn't be my guy for, for number one. Yeah, I agree. With you. I, I'm, I'm a little bit timid on Weatherholt and, I haven't seen him play other than, you know, watching some some video clips on Twitter. I need to dig in. I, I will probably watch more college baseball this year than I've ever watched in my life because obviously this is a, a unique opportunity for Cleveland and 
uh, I'm excited to to learn more about these guys than I normally would. Or, um, but yeah, I look at like the data on Weatherholt, and it's you know low. It doesn't strike out a lot, which obviously we know Cleveland prefers guys who don't strike out, and at at the detriment of guys who hit the ball on the ground at 86 miles an hour. Unfortunately, a lot of times they love they love the ground ball to second, even if it means you're not striking out for whatever reason. Uh, but Weatherholt also doesn't walk. The walk rate is very low too, which is concerning. So that makes me feel like he's a very aggressive hitter. And that profile just tends to lend itself to um, very low outcomes. Like you said, he's a high ceiling, uh, high, high, high floor, low ceiling player. So maybe things work out for him, but the approach just kind of scares me. I, I want to see a guy who walks a little more, who's a little more patient at the plate. Cause maybe that means that they've got a better approach. And I don't know how the pitching in Big 12 is. It doesn't sound like you feel like it's really good. I don't know how it is, but I feel like it's – I don't know if it's any better than the ACC because, I mean, I, I watched – I've watched Wake Forest a lot. So I, because I don't watch a lot of college baseball, I tend to gravitate towards the the big-name teams because that's just, you know, where I am in the process. I spend January through April looking at prospects, and I spend April through June looking at Cleveland's prospects, and then July comes around, then I start digging on the draft. So I don't have – a I don't – spend as much time on, on the draft as I normally would like. And I have more the last couple of years, but so 2022, I spent a lot of time watching Tennessee. I like Tennessee guys. Cause I watched that it was a big name that year. And then last year I watched a ton of wake forest and I got super excited about uh, Brock Wilkin, who went to the Brewers, a pick before Cleveland, but I got to see a lot of Nick Kurtz. I liked what I saw there. And the only concern that I, again, I don't know how good ACC pitching is truthfully. And I don't, I know, a lot of people say that their ballpark is kind of a hitter friendly ballpark where they play games at. Um, my only concern with him is he doesn't have a, he's a first baseman, which makes it a very risky profile to work out. B he has not played anywhere outside of college. Like he's not playing in the Cape. He hasn't played on the team USA circuit since he was like 12. So Cleveland really tends to like the guys that are performing well in the wood bat leagues or on other high competition circuits. And Kurtz doesn't have any of that. And whenever his season ends in 2024, uh, he's certainly not going to the Cape, I'd imagine, because he might be a top three pick. So I don't think he's going to get that there. I don't know if he'll go to the Combine and Cleveland will get a good look at him there and and see what happens. But um, I am enamored with Nick Kurtz. I think the swing is really good. I think he has power to all fields. Uh, He walks more and he strikes out. I love all that. But the risk is a first baseman, the bat's got to play. You have nothing to fall back on. That's why I wonder if he can play any left field at all. Number two, just there's no there's no data outside of college. Like there's no Cape Cod League data, there's no Team USA data, which is a little bit scary too. I think. So I ran. It, it's kind of funny you mention. You know, uh, we'll call it extracurricular competition, either <laughs> either Team USA or or the Cape. And I ran a little study because I I was just curious about it to see what the success rate for Team USA players. Uh, you know, what's the success rate? A, they make it to the big leagues and B, what type of player they are. And uh, unsurprisingly, you know, it the success rates are, are were extraordinarily high that if a guy had Team USA on his resume, you know, I can't remember the percentages because this was a couple of years ago, but it was more often than, than not, they made the big leagues, which is half the battle when you're drafting, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. it tends to be such a crapshoot. And guys that were on Team USA twice, it was exponentially higher. And not only that, you're talking more often than not all-star 
level or caliber production. And I did a quick peruse as I was kind of getting ready for this today. And um, to the best of my knowledge, it didn't look like there was any guy on Team USA that played last year and the year before. So unfortunately, you know, we don't have that data point kind of to say, hey, this guy, you know, chances are this guy's going to hit, you know, but it's just, you know, I'm a big believer in the Cape. I was up in, in, um, I was up in Massachusetts for work and I drove the hour or two over to watch the Cape Cod League. And, and uh, that's when I first saw Justin Dunn in person. And it's, it's an incredible uh, way to watch a game. It's very low key. I was at uh, the Kettler's home field and it's just carved out in the middle of a neighborhood kind of type of thing. And uh, you know, the, it, it's top college competition. Like if you can handle top college competition, you know, uh, chances are you're going to bode very well in the professional ranks. Yeah. That was a big reason why Cleveland took Chase DeLauder. I feel like too, is because he had that Cape Cod league success. And um, the other guy here that we can talk about, we talked about Travis Mazzana is he has that data point. I don't know where he was. I think he played in the North woods league or no, I think he played in some sort of other Pacific league. I'd have to look, but um, he's, he's also kind of young based on where he's been, but um, Travis Bazzano won the Cape Cod league MVP last year and hit the, I think he led the league in, in batting average. I mean, it might've been every, every uh, offensive. I think he won the triple crown out there if I'm not mistaken, but it was a great season for him and, and knock on him as he's a second baseman right now. I don't know where Oregon state's going to play him, but I feel like everything I've read about him to this point makes maybe him the safest pick at one, one, because unlike Weatherholt, he seems to have a more uh, stable approach. I think he walks a little more and he strikes out right now. At least he walks a little more than, than Weatherholt does. And um, he is on the dirt. I don't know where he's going to play, like I said, but he does have the Cape Cod league success in the past, which like you said, sets him up very well. So I feel like that makes him another guy that is easily, I think anybody would, would consider him the one, one conversation most years, but uh, I feel like that Cape Cod league success does firmly put him in the conversation, at least as of December 12th. And if I'm looking at it, right. He also spent parts of three years in the Australian baseball league uh, as a 15, 16 and 17 year old, which is just kind of, you know, it's uh, that's pretty noteworthy as well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he, he does have speed. I wonder if he's a candidate to, to, you know, maybe move out to center field and kind of turn into uh, the opposite Jason Kipnis experiment. Cause wasn't he a center fielder at, uh, was it Arizona state? state. And then yeah. they ended up pulling him in on the, in, in on the, on the dirt. So I wonder if, you know, potentially moving him out to to center field. Uh, You know, he looks like he could potentially move quickly through a system. And uh, we all know the dire need uh, (laughs) that Cleveland has right now for any type of outfield production, uh, especially in center field. Um, So, you know, that, that could very well be something that could happen too. Yeah, I definitely could. Okay, so you mentioned Griffin. We mentioned Kurtz. Mentioned Bazana. Um, before we move off of Bazana, I'm also yeah. a believer because I'm all I just like little nerdy stats and stuff. Uh, they also do have success going into Oklahoma or uh, Oregon State because that's where Quan came from too. 
That's true. And I, I, I tend to feel like the Pac-12 is a pretty good baseball conference. I mean, the ACC has produced some good players, I think. But although although if you look at the numbers, like looking at Wake Forest specifically, because obviously they had a lot of guys drafted last year and they're going to have a lot of guys drafted this coming year. Um, but there's not a lot of Wake Forest guys in the big leagues that have really produced. Maybe the, the program has gotten better over the last handful of years, but you can obviously look at every roster in baseball and point out like some Pac-12 success, including Stephen Kwan. Yeah, and I, I was trying to think when we were talking about Kurt, who's the last impactful bat to come out of Wake? And and uh, I'm kind of drawing a blank right now. I know, uh, uh, was it Gavin Sheets? Wasn't he a Wake guy? That might be the only one. I can't think of anybody else. There just isn't anybody good in the, in the majors right now. I don't think that... Uh, was there there was somebody else i can't think of who it was but you're right it might have been gavin sheets no i don't he i'm looking he didn't go to to wake it had to be stuart fairchild ah yeah no that makes sense wake yeah that would be yeah i'm just looking at some players now. Oh, no, gavin sheets rough. Wake, yeah but you did yeah gavin sheets to go to wake so again you know it's it's just something to note. I mean, who knows? It all it takes is one guy to dispel that whole notion. Uh, That's true. That is true. Yeah, Jared. I mean, not for bats, but Jared Schuster's out there. Yeah, Fairchild. Oof. Will Craig, who was a first baseman too, by the way. Not he was announced as a third baseman. Actually, not great. Uh, oof, I'm looking way down, way down here to see if there's any other hitters, even going back decades that really worked out in majors and there is nobody, there's some pictures, but there's really no history of wake forest producing any big time impact bats yep. in the majors. But like you said, you got to look at who's on the board of, to you now. And every player is an individual. Cleveland did take Tommy Hawk last year from wake forest. I will say that. So, um, and I happen to know the, the scout from that area for Cleveland also was a former uh, co-host of this podcast at one time. So, <laughs> Yeah, so it's just again, it it doesn't really mean anything. I just find it more fascinating, you know, yeah. just from a historical con, uh, context type of thing. Now, this is going to change too because I don't. I mean, you could tell me how you felt about Paul Skeens this time last year, but I, I've heard other people say that he wasn't necessarily in line in in position to be one one overall at this time last year. That that happened throughout the, the season, um, <clears throat> so things could change. But you know you got to consider the odds. If Cleveland thinks that Chase Burns is the guy um, at one-one, I mean, there's certainly a lot of buzz around him. He transferred to Wake Forest, which right now seems to have a good pitching model, a good pitching program there. Um, but I mean, this time a year ago, like I said, you didn't have most people didn't have um, Skeens in one-one overall. A lot of people thought that uh, that Chase Dollander was going to be the first overall pick in the draft, and obviously things didn't go well for him. So a lot can change, but. I guess we probably can't count out the the possibility of Cleveland looking pitcher number one overall based on what they normally do. And college pitchers are generally very safe in a one one overall. So I like I like Burns quite a bit. And you know, it's not like he's transferring, you know, from some JUCO or some NAIA school, right? He spent two years at Tennessee. So and he did pretty damn well for uh at, at Tennessee. You know, plus fastball, borderline plus plus with a wipeout slider. Uh, 
you know, that's certainly a pretty strong foundation. He throws strikes. The command, he's more of a strike thrower than a command guy, obviously, but you don't need to be when you're throwing that hard. Um, you know, but we've seen what Cleveland can do with pitching and, and what they can do with arms and how they develop them. And, you know, how many organizations would you bet on that would be able to get someone like that to take that next step? You know, maybe Cleveland, Tampa Bay, the Dodgers, you know, Houston. yeah, Houston. It's a pretty short list. And, uh, you know, like you said, it, it they tend to be safer. And he's coming from, you know, two very good programs, right? So it seems to hit a Although, lot. <laughs> arguably, I'm not sure. I, I really have a hard time understanding why Chase Burns – uh, transferred to Wake Forest, considering, like you said, we thought Tennessee was a good program, but Dollander took a step back last year, it seems like. And uh, I'm not sure why Burns transferred, so that makes me kind of question things at Tennessee. But Wake Forest, you know, they had Rhett Louder last year. They had uh, Sean Sullivan taken, Seth Keener. I mean, they had a ton of pitchers taken last year. A lot of the other pitchers, too. And this is this is the same data point. Like you said, it doesn't really necessarily mean anything, but it's interesting that, you know, Ryan Cusick and Jared Schuster, who – I, can't, I think those both those guys are traded to Oakland, or they were Braves picks traded to Oakland. Yeah, uh, those guys haven't really broken out the major league level, so we haven't really seen a Wake Forest pitcher in, in a lot of years break free. But uh, they seem to have something going there right now, having all these top picks and getting a guy like Chase Burns to, to transfer there. So we'll see. But uh, so I never, I never, not to cut you off. I apologize. I never. Um, I know that they were using Burns kind of to piggyback off of Dollander towards the middle to the end of the year where Dollander would go four or five innings and they'd bring Burns in after that. Um, you know, so I wonder if he was just, if it was that kind of motivated him to look elsewhere. Um, you know, maybe it's something like that. And I have to admit, I was never heading into the draft. I was not a huge fan of Dollander's fastball. Like for what it was supposed to be, it looked awfully hittable based on what I was expecting going into watching him, you know, so that's just, I guess we'll see how that plays out in the coming years. Well, you could bet whatever happens to him in the pros, it will not be aided by what the Rockies can do with pitching because they can't do anything I, I, completely off topic. But I, I actually really liked the Rockies draft last year. They took a bunch of pitchers. I really liked a lot of players. I really liked, and they're probably going to ruin them all because that's the Rockies. They're the Rockies. And I'm very glad we are not Rockies fans are covering the Rockies because yeah, I really liked Dollander the year before he was draft eligible, obviously, like everybody did. And I really liked Sean Sullivan last year. I'm trying to think who else they picked, but I like their draft. And I'm just like, cool, they're gonna they're gonna ruin a bunch of the guys that I really liked in the draft last year. That's that's good for them. So sorry, Rockies fans. Um <laughs> so yeah, Chase Burns could be in play there. Uh I was I was fully prepared to go in on like, you know, before Cleveland got the number one overall pick. I was like, all right, they'll probably pick anywhere between six and ten. So I'm like, that's like you know, Mike Sirota or Vance Honeycutt or Jack Caglione maybe in play there. I'm like, those are all picks that Cleveland could be playing with. I like that that little group right there. Now I'm like, okay, well, as much as I like Mike Sirota, I can't I can't see Mike Sirota being a one one overall player. Um, do you? I see, think a lot of. Do ahead. you see them taking? I don't see them as a as fascinated as I am by him. I don't see Cleveland taking Caglione just because. I, I, I don't know. It's so hard for me to wrap my mind around them taking a potential two-way guy 
right? Because that's kind of come in vogue, you know, basically since Otani broke in. You had the Giants taken, uh, who was it, Reggie Reggie Crawford, I think. Crawford, yeah. yeah, two years ago and whatnot. And, and I don't know. He seems like he could be a – it's not uncommon to see these college bats kind of take a, a – a noticeable step forward during between their sophomore and junior years. And I know that there's concerns about Caglione's swing and everything, but he didn't swing and miss that much last year. Um, you know, I think it was about 18%, he, 18 percent of the time he struck out. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I would be fascinated by him, uh, you know, but I just don't think Cleveland takes that gamble. It is a gamble. I think you're right. There's there's probably going to be a lot of conversation around that over the next seven months because of the Otani thing. And Caglione was was super fun to watch last year. I mean, Golden Spikes Award tonight finalist and hit 33 home runs and he throws 95 as a left-handed pitcher. Like, that's that's a lot of fun. Those are a lot of tools. Uh, and I think I, what, yeah. what separates Otani from anybody else, and, you know, I think Garrett Cole, there, there was an interview with him. And he said the thing that impressed him most was his ability to recover, right? You can have the potential to be a two-way guy and Caglione's doing it in college where they play a few games a week and not every single day. So it's that ability to recover that basically separates Otani from everybody else because he can, he can go out and throw six or seven innings or, you know, five, six, seven innings, throw well, throw hard, and then come back and, hit in the middle of the lineup the next day. Yeah, he he is a freak unlike anybody else. There's a reason he's getting I was going to say it's the reason he's getting 700 million, but really he's getting 20 million and then then it's 680 million for ages 40 to whatever. That whole thing is is just mind-boggling right now. I don't have time to get into, but he, there's a reason he's getting all that money cuz he is I said before, Cleveland likes these unicorn type players that if they do hit, they're superstars and, and Jack Caglione certainly could be. I, I expect a lot of people who um, are casual baseball fans or don't follow the draft. Usually if they're going to be more engaged this year because of Cleveland's pick to have questions about Caglione because of what he has done in college. And you're absolutely right. When you play, you know, you play Tuesdays and then you play Friday through Sunday and he might pitch one of those days and hit three of them. Whereas like you said, Otani's pitching one day and then he's hitting five other days. Plus he's hitting the day he pitches. That's a huge difference, huge and difference. I, and I think, you know, not that major league organizations or front offices run their organizations like this, but I think, you know, it, it's the draft. There's always risk. There is no certain player. There's no definite, I'm going to 100% guarantee this guy is going to be uh, a star type of prospect. There's not. There's guys the history of the minor leagues are just littered with guys that just busted that just nobody would have thought. So Matt you know. Laporta. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I think it's a lot more understanding if you're standing there and you have the one overall pick and God forbid they swing and miss on it. And you take someone like Jack Caglione and you're like, man, look at, look at the skills. And this is why we went after him. It's, it's, it's explainable. Whereas, you know, you know, you look at Weatherholt and be like, well, he really dominated, you know, the Big 12 and and he was a great second baseman, potential shortstop. It's a lot easier to explain away missing, you know, not that the casual fan or anybody would buy into that or it, or you're the owner either. But, you know, I think it's it's a little more understandable. 
yeah, I mean that's that's how people lose their jobs, right? Is is whiffing on on stuff like this, and uh, Jack certainly poses a bigger risk to do that. I mean, look, if it works out, yeah, he's a guy who could be a franchise changing talent, but the likelihood that he gets there versus the likelihood that Weatherholt and Bazana reach their ceiling is it's probably a little better, even if their ceilings are a little bit lower. It's all about probabilities and projections and. This is why Cleveland is a very model-heavy, uh, model-friendly team because of these these projections. It doesn't always work out, especially on the hitting side of things. Obviously, they've done, they've done a poor job developing hitters, um, so I'm very curious to see what they do one-one overall if they do decide to go with a a position player. But I expect a lot of conversation about Jack. I think for Jack, he's got to throw more strikes. I know a lot of people felt like last year he um, didn't always didn't have great command at times. And I know he, I know you say he didn't swing and miss a lot, but he does have, I've read, has a very high chase rate. So for a guy who may not swing and miss a lot, he is still chasing at balls out of the zone. Maybe he's hitting them. I'm not sure, but I know he has a pretty high chase rate. And that's something Cleveland usually doesn't love. But again, they do like these unicorn types, and he certainly could be one of them. It's a lot of tools, but it's a lot of risk. And you're putting your job on the line if you pick a guy like this and it doesn't work out. Because as we've seen, Cleveland's never picked number one overall in the draft. Even those terrible years in the 70s and the 80s, they never picked number one overall. This is the first time in franchise history, which is kind of weird because they were terrible for a long time. And because of the way the draft order was handled, they didn't pick number one overall in some of those bad years. But also, since they stopped doing that, Cleveland's never been quite bad enough to pick number one overall, which is you know, a testament to itself as well, especially considering they weren't trying to lose last year. They didn't play well. They weren't trying to lose, and they still went with an overall pick, which goes back to our point about the lottery working. Is if you've got teams who are actually trying to win, even if it didn't work out, they're picking number one overall, and that should be rewarded, I suppose, in some ways. But uh, yeah, you've essentially got a franchise changing play- player in Jack, but there's a lot of good players at the top of this draft, and I'm very curious to see where this goes. And I hope you and I could have more conversations about the draft as the year goes on. Um, if you got another any other points in the draft, feel free to throw them in there. But uh, if you've got time, I'd love to still get around to that little five pick of Davison and De Los Santos. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, it, it kind of involves both here. But I, I'm i sure you saw this stat or whatever is floating around the interwebs or on Twitter or Reddit or something like that. The most, uh, the highest winning percentage among organizations over what was it the last 10 or 15 years or something like that. And the guardians ranked, what was it fifth or something with the fifth highest winning percentage over some ridiculously long window. And I know fans tend to jump on the Dolans and that they don't spend money or whatever, but this is a very well-run organization. I know they swing and miss like the Nolan Jones thing, you know, in hindsight, that kind of doesn't look great potentially the Will Benson thing doesn't look great. Uh, the Jake Bowers for Andy Diaz, that one definitely doesn't look great. But they generally, I mean, you're making all kinds of moves, you know, throughout the course of a month or a year or whatever. But things always seem to, they generally do well on a whole, right? So, you know, I think you got to, cut the front office a break even with the draft coming up because they let's just say they miss on the first pick you know they still have you know what'd you say the 36th and the 48th or in the 86th mm-hmm. they're not gonna miss it it i don't think they'll miss on all of them you know and and uh 
So I think it's it's worth, you know, just believing or buying into in the Antonetti and Chernoff. Yeah, they generally do put a lot of trust in their draft guys and um they've done very well. I mean, look at the look at the composition of this team. It's mostly draft guys, especially when it comes to pitching. They've got that down to a science. They've got that figured out. But uh yeah, the hitting side I think they still gotta they gotta work on, but uh this is their chance. I don't again. I don't know how good this draft is going to be. It, it, we'll find out, but they've got a chance to change some narratives and and grab some hitters that are good and change things a little bit. And um, hopefully, this is the time they can do it. When it comes to the Rule Five draft, this is this is a weird one. Um, I did not expect Cleveland to pick up make a pick at all. Truthfully, if they did, I thought it would be a pitcher because that's normally what they also do. Instead, they picked a twenty-year-old third baseman who. I don't know. Based on what I've seen, I don't know if he's going to play third base, but a uh, 20 year old who had 20 home runs last year in double A struck out quite a bit. he made some swing changes in the second half was a lot better, even though he has a very aggressive profile in terms of, he doesn't strike out a ton for a 20 year old at double A 26% strikeout rate seems high. But when you talk about a 20 year old being at double A, that's pretty, that's okay. The walk rate being, I think was like in the 5% range and in the second half, where I mean, the second half he took off. He made a swing change, and he ended up hitting like three. What was it? Three twelve. I have to find the numbers I had written down. Three three twelve, three thirty three, five eighty in the second half with uh, or from July first on, um, with thirteen of his twenty home runs. The first half was was pretty bad. I mean, it was uh, it was two oh eight or two oh six, two sixty nine, three oh eight with a twenty six percent strikeout rate, slightly higher walk rate. So there is concern there, but. Um, I think a lot of people felt like he was the had the highest upside of any player left unprotected in the Rule Five draft. I just didn't see Cleveland going this route because he's not the guy we've talked about all night. We've talked about their love for middle infielders who make contact and are solid performers. Not, I mean, he is young. He was young for being a Double A player, so there is that, I guess. But this is not a profile I expected Cleveland to select. So I loved as, as you were kind of doing your segue here. He was one of 16 20-year-olds in any double-A league last year, which is saying something, right? That is, like we were talking before I mentioned, that is usually the true test for me is if a guy succeeds in double-A, you know, especially at a younger level, you know, that's that's definitely a strong indicator for, for me, uh, especially at the big league level. On the other hand, you know, the Diamondbacks pushed a lot of right buttons last year in their run. You know, they had an incredibly young team. Uh, I think expectations need to be tempered a bit. I saw um, someone refer, uh, you know, to how popular this pick was or whatever after it was made. 20-year-olds in AA that are legitimate prospects typically don't get exposed to the Rule 5 draft, right? So there's things going on here and the odds of him sticking with Cleveland for the entire year or whatever the time, what is it? 90 days, I think, or something like that. Well, it's, it's 90 days. If he's on the, on the injured list for an extended amount of time, there's okay. an ex- exception for that. But if there is no major injury where he would have to spend time on the, on the, the, the disabled or injured list, uh, it's gotta be the full season. So it's, yeah. it's a little more likely to do when you're a pitcher, right? Yep. So there, the odds, especially, you know, maybe they can catch lightning in a bottle like, like they did two years ago. And, 
you know, depending on how the season plays out, if they win a little more than they're supposed to, the odds of him sticking and becoming part of a numbers crunch, you know, those odds increase where, you know, he may get exposed to not being with the team. Um, but if they're not contending, then they can kind of stick with them longer to see if he can actually hit. But, you know, generally speaking, legitimate potential 20-year-old impact bats at the big league level coming off a season in double-A, you know, they just don't really get exposed to to the Rule 5 draft. That is true. And I guess this is kind of Cleveland deciding that they bought into the second half adjustments and he's but was better and they think he's capable of making those adjustments and, and getting better with more time with that, especially the way he was trending last year. So they're buying into that. And I know a lot of people will jump and say that, Oh, it's, it's a lot like John Kins and Noel. Why do they need this guy when they have Noel? I, I think he's better than Noel. I mean, I don't know how you feel about John Kins and Noel, but I'm personally not super high on him because when you're saying guys who perform well at the double-A level, Jenkins and Noel, especially at the age of 20, Jenkins and Noel doesn't have a run like that at double-A at age 20 the way De-, De Los Santos does. I will say on the defensive side of things, from what I've seen, De Los Santos to me looks like a first baseman slash DH. I don't think he has the arm for third pace. I don't think he um, – I don't think he has the range either. I think it's a first base only profile doesn't run really well it's a it's a very power heavy dependent profile but like you said the performance at age 20 at double a is very rare so i don't think he's anything like noel in that in that term noel doesn't quite strike out as much as de los santos has and he does walk a little bit more but i feel like i think de los santos gets to a little more power at times even though i think that his swing decisions could are definitely going to need some work i think you know, I haven't I'm I'm just working my way through the book this year and I haven't written about the the Diamondback, so I haven't done like a full complete dive on it. But as you were kind of talking and I mean you're right, like swing decisions, it's obviously plus power uh for someone to be doing that as a twenty year old in double A. Um I don't know, I'm just kind of getting like Mikhail Franco vibes, right? Like you're talking about a guy that would hit like I don't know, 250 or 260 with a low on base percentage and and he'd run into, you know, 20 home runs a year or whatever. Um, you know, that's probably his ceiling if everything breaks the right way. But again, the odds of that happening are probably not overly high, uh, you know, even if we are betting heavily on that second half surge. Yeah, there's still a lot to clean up there. And making a jump to the major leagues from being a 20-year-old in double-A to being 21 playing in the majors against the best pitching on earth. <laughs> it's a, it's Well, he'll be 20. He'll still be 20, actually, most of the year. He doesn't turn 21 until June, with late June at that. So he's still going to be playing most of his season next year at age 20, which is wild. Uh, so to make that jump from double-A to the majors – I don't know. It's it's a very it's a very big risk, and like like I said, if Cleveland, if it works, then they've got themselves a nice player who can. I don't know. My guess is they'll probably only expose them to lefties in the majors. They'll try to do it that way, and you know they've got Jose Ramirez at third base. They don't necessarily need him at third base. They can platoon him with Naylor at first, and maybe Kyle Manzardo, and, and work him in that way, and see how that works out, and try to reduce his exposure. Because what you can do is you just 
you try to play him as little as, as possible without you know hurting him because he still needs the development so he can't really sit but you play him in advantageous matchups against lefties and you don't overexpose him and then the next year at age 21 he could still go down to double to triple a and get some more refinement there because he's still young like even if this guy sticks the whole year i would think that in, unless he really just blossoms out of nowhere 2025 he could easily be going back to triple a if he sticks in 2024 because he's still going to be 21 years old in 2025 yeah but just i mean we were kind of talking we're both kind of old guys right now right uh the the i am quite a bit older uh but remember just put your mind frame if you can put your mind frame around being a 20 or 21 year old kid you get called up what and you're not playing and right and the chances are when he plays he's probably not going to perform at a high level so what is that going to do for your mental approach right because he's gonna sit and he's probably gonna sit quite a bit because like you said unless there's an injury god forbid to to j ram uh you know third base he's not going to see a lot of time there and if he even if he does he's really not a third baseman and you know everybody's hoping that Naylor can uh have a repeat performance uh and stay healthy for the full year and you know obviously everybody's aware of what Manzaro did in the Arizona Fall League you know um those guys are going to be seeing the the lion's share of time at first base and and in DH you have to imagine so he's going to end up sitting and how is that going to affect him mentally you know i I don't think i'm a big believer in in the mental side of the game and i don't think it gets talked about enough because there's a certain level of mental fortitude you have and it's going to take a special 20 year old kid 21 year old kid to to come and sit still try to continue to develop and not actually get playing time that's that's a great point yeah i mean hiding guys the major level like you know cleveland was able to hide trevor stefan a little bit in 2021 and then 2022 he had a breakout but when you're a reliever it's a whole lot different because you can pitch him in mop-up duty and um he was yeah. older oh well, he wasn't 20 yeah. he was like 25 26 as a rule five pick this kid you're right he's 20 i was an idiot at 20 and i didn't know what i thought about anything at age 20 i still don't know um yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be a lot harder for him to process all this and in a brand new organization with brand new voices in his ear. It's a lot to process. So yeah, essentially the deck is really stacked against him. So it's an interesting pick um, in all those ways you talked about the mental side of it's very hard. Cause even let's say he even stays on Cleveland's roster all of 2024, right? Let's say that they, they keep him and you're likely to option him down in 2025 uh, at age 21 at, to triple a, like that's still not a great confidence thing for him. And he's got to, he's got to go through all 2024 not getting a lot of development and not playing well, like you said, most likely. And he's got to rebuild his confidence the next year. And he's going to AAA. And it's like, great, I was just in the majors last year. Now I'm in AAA. Like, there are all kinds of mental hurdles here for him to clear, not just the fact that he's got to work on swing decisions and uh, if he can improve at all at third base defensively and everything else, hitting major league pitching so hard. You know, there are no there are no Garrett Coles. There are no uh, – Pablo Lopez is in triple A or even double A. So you might face those guys on their way up as prospects, but there, there's no substitute for facing those guys in the majors. So it's hard and there could be long lasting effects. This is why um, I think Cleveland in the past has studied like players reactions to being called up like mentally, like doing surveys with that mental health surveys about 
when they're called up and why they call players up mostly when they're performing well in the minors, if they can help it. Like you're right. The mental side is a, a huge part of this. And I don't know how it's going to work out, but I don't know, it's just weird because like you said, Nick, maybe if everything goes well, he's Michael Franco and that's, that's an okay player, but there's a reason that guy was, was non-tender by Philadelphia and wound up on a very bad Kansas city Royals team. So it's, it's a peculiar pick at the best. So, who is I am because like I said I'm old and I'm drawing a blank. Who was the uh, the guy that pirates the 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 right-handed hurler that the uh, Pirates grabbed from us in the Rule Five draft uh, a couple years ago? Kind of bounced back and forth. Luis Oviedo, yeah. Yes, yeah. How did that? You know what I mean? Like that guy was he stuck after, the whole year. Yeah, yeah, but what happened after that? Right, like he still uh, got let go. Yeah. There, you know, he's, I guess what I'm saying is he's not better for that, right? Like, mm-hmm. he wasn't better for sticking with the whole year and everything like that. Like, I just, I don't know. I, sometimes you hit on lottery tickets, right? And that's all De Los Santos is. And, uh, but I think expectations need to be tempered significantly. It would be ironic. <laughs> yeah, I, I would, I'm definitely keeping them. Tem- uh, tempered. I mean, you had a number five overall in your in your book last year, but that also doesn't assume that he could play in the majors at age twenty the next year. Like that was last year in in, in springtime, so that doesn't assume he can make that jump. Obviously, but it would be ironic if if they took De Los Santos in the draft because we don't know what they're going to do with Manzardo, right? In terms of service time games and all that kind of stuff, they really should not keep him in, in AAA to start the year. If there's any chance that he can win Rookie of the Year and get him an extra pick. Um, but it would be really ironic if if they drafted De Los Santos to put you know to DH and put to in play first with Naylor to keep Kyle Manzardo in AAA until they can manipulate some service time because <laughs> Manzardo's probably ready to go day one and De Los Santos definitely is not ready to go day one unless they just completely like you said hit lightning in a bottle here. And I think it's also important you know to provide some context on Arizona's farm system. They're very heading into the year. They were very top end heavy. Yeah, uh, Corbin Carroll, Lawler, Drew Jones, and I had Brandon Fott uh, one through four, and then I had De Los Santos five. But after you know, after four, there's a pretty big drop off in terms of of uh, prospect hype. I guess mm. you know, like. You have De Los Santos, and then I you had guys like Jorge Barosa and and Blake Walston and stuff like that. So sure, he was number five in their system, but there was a pretty big drop off after those first four. Yeah, there sure were, and that's that's gonna be the case for Cleveland too. I'm not really sure. I haven't really dove into where I would rank De Los Santos in Cleveland's system, but it's certainly not gonna be top five. Um, yeah. That just, I mean, that still speaks to Cleveland's system a little bit, but also. Um, just where he's at, and I guess it's a good thing he wouldn't be number one or number two and or even number five in the system. But at the same time, doesn't mean he can play in the major. So it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be very strange. I'm not sure what they're going to do. And I here. I will say this one kind of final thought. I think Stephen Boat. I think he is the ideal manager. He is. I was a huge fan of them bringing him in. And if there was a guy that could 
like I don't know him. I followed his career pretty closely because I think it was an interesting kind of career arc. And uh, I think, you know, based on what everybody's saying about him, his, his former teammates and, and everything, there was a guy that could make it work with De Los Santos. I'm just saying I think it might be vote. Yeah, it definitely speaks to, I mean, his, his career being what it was, being an underdog and the odds kind of stacked against him having the career that he did. You're right. He could definitely relate a lot to that, to De Los Santos. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how good De Los Santos' English is and what the gap on that might be, but. That also might, enough. That yeah. just might be a little bit of homerism and my own fanboyism, hoping, mm-hmm. hoping for the best. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that's that's unfair to say. You're right. I mean, that that is the key part of any manager is is relating to your players. And um, you know, Vote was never a top five prospect in anyone's system, but um, De Los Santos has long odds to stick in the majors, and and so did Vote. So there is that um, bit of relatability that certainly helps. So one thing I wouldn't rule out. And I'm not saying this is going to happen. I don't have any inside information on this, but it does happen. It usually happens the time of the draft and not after, but there is a chance that Cleveland trades something to Arizona to release the rule five protections on De Los Santos. Like you can, you can take that restriction off by trading something to Arizona and agreeing that, Hey, we won't take them back. If you option them down, if you trade us, whoever. So maybe they can work out a trade where they can send something to Arizona and then take the rule five uh, restrictions off of De Los Santos option, the triple a and, have a more traditional path with him going forward. Um, like I said, I don't know if there's anything like that in the works, but there is that possibility there that, you know, would make a lot more sense for this pick if Cleveland felt like they were close. Arizona does need both on how Cleveland might have some guys to trade. I don't know. And um, I feel like that but, doesn't that type of stuff usually happen like right around the end of spring training. You kind of get a good feel. I, I, I may be way off, but I feel like that just kind of tends to happen around like the end of spring training. You get guys that, you get a pretty good sense if they're going to hack it or not, no pun intended, at, at the big league level. <laughs> and they may like him enough to just say, hey, you know, you can have one of our 3,000 middle infielders and uh, we'll call it a deal. No, you're right. That's true. I mean, usually what, Rule 5 picks get traded the day of the draft, but not necessarily. Oh, I am. Um, yeah, I got the, Yeah. Yeah, not, they're not dropping their protection the day of the draft, but – you're right. In spring training, if there's a guy they think will or will not stick, depending on how bad they want him, you're right. They get an idea what what he can do in spring training. And if they really want him, they can try to work out a trade. And that you're right that that might come towards spring training when you get a better idea of what's how things are going to go there. So um, that might not be resolved anytime soon. That we may have to wait until March to see if Cleveland really wants to keep him, and if there's any kind of deal uh, that can be reached. All right, well, Joe, I've kept you quite late here. We've gone pretty long on a lot of topics. This was a lot of fun. Um, loved your insights in the draft and all the history. And, uh, I, you know, throwing Connor Griffin in there makes a ton of sense. Definitely a guy to keep an eye on and think about things going forward. And appreciate your insight on De Los Santos because, you know, you, you cover all 30 teams in your book. The 2023, you can still get the 2023 Prospect Digest Handbook at on Amazon and Joe, you said 2024, there is going to be a book, but this is number 10 and, and the final one. There's a good possibility. I know my wife is kind of rooting quietly that this is the last one. Uh, you know, she supported me for the majority, you know, of all, she's always supported me. She hasn't been around for all 10, but uh, 
yeah, she, I, I think 10's kind of run its course and, and there's other things in, in baseball I'd like to focus in on in terms of writing and whatnot. Totally fair. Well, I, when book number 10 comes out, please let me know. Cause I will pre-order on Amazon. I always do. I've got, like I said, I think I've got at least two other ones in my, uh, my bookcase over there with my baseball perspectives annual and my baseball America handbook every year. I like to, I have to collect them all and read everyone else's thoughts and, um, you know, I give you a lot of credit for being a self-published author and how much work you put into this. Cause it's something, it's something I would love to do, but I know I don't have the time and the depth to do it. So, uh, trust me when I say, I, I definitely appreciate what you do. And I, I think it's a, a great thing. And I'm looking forward to book number 10, even if it is the last. And I encourage you, if you're listening to this, to, to look out for, for Joe's link for book number 10 at Jolton Joey on, on Twitter and, uh, prospect digest handbook on Amazon. Definitely look for that. Well, thanks for having me on. I, uh, you know, I think we chatted for about, I don't know, an hour and a half, but it only seems about 10 minutes. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. Hopefully, uh, you know, whether if you have some time between your writing the, the last book here, if you have more time to come on, I'd love to have you back. I, uh, I hope people enjoyed this. I, I definitely enjoyed chatting with you. And like I said, you know, a lot more in the draft than I do. And, um, would love to get your thoughts again as the year goes on when we debate more about what's going to happen at this first overall pick. Yeah. And this is, I got to be honest, this is the perfect excuse on why to take a break from writing. So I'm always, I'm always uh, looking for an excuse to, to take the night off and chat baseball. All right. Well, we will do that again then hopefully. And uh, as I said, with the, the guardians of the future podcast, hard to hard to record these things when I'm, I'm doing lockdown guardians five days a week, but when there is big news, obviously like this, I will find a way to record podcasts like this and, uh, Hopefully have guests like Joe in the future. And uh, when the next time any news breaks on the Guardians minor league system, if there's a trade or an addition of some prospect or getting closer to spring training, we'll be back on and hopefully we'll have Joe on again. Thank you all for listening and uh, downloading, rating, reviewing, all that stuff helps. You know, this is an independent podcast versus what the podcast is on Lockdown Guardians. So any support we do appreciate. Check out the Next Year in Cleveland newsletter. Uh, I'll link all that here in the show description, but thank you for all your support. Thanks to Joe for joining me today. And uh, let's be excited for for July. I know it's a long way off, but excited for that number one overall pick for the Guardians. Uh, Stay tuned for more.